This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar's Investment Management Group, which includes subsidiaries of Morningstar, Inc., who are authorized for the appropriate jurisdiction to provide advisory services. The content is intended for U.S. audiences and European professional investors only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries unless otherwise noted. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. This is Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Today, we're continuing our series of episodes based on weekly webcasts we're hosting for advisors. Now, again, we had some trouble with the audio from the moderator, so I will be asking questions and we'll use the panelists' responses from the webcast. The panelists today are Andrew Lill, CIO in the Americas region, and Philip Strail, Head of Capital Markets and Asset Allocation in the Americas at Morningstar Investment Management. First is a question for Andrew Lill. Andrew, the first quarter of 2020 was turbulent. What do you think investors should take away from this experience? The first quarter of 2020 certainly was turbulent, but it may be easy to forget that the U.S. stock market made a strong start to this year. In fact, through February 19th, the S&P 500 was up more than 5%, and the Nasdaq was up actually more than 9% following a 2019 when equity markets, especially in the United States, recorded returns stronger than had been experienced in any years since 2009. But obviously soon after, major stock markets experienced one of the fastest drawdowns on record. We think at least early on, declines were driven by a strong cocktail of complete uncertainty about the impact of COVID-19, Uh, expensive stock and bond market valuations, and natural behavioral anxiety amongst investors looking for a trigger to sell and lock in their large past gains. As the sell-off wore on, we saw greater clarity of the negative impact on corporate fundamentals, as well as widespread rebalancing by asset managers into equities and away from bonds. And now today, we consider it a strong probability that the US economy is now in a recession. Market dislocations peaked in mid-March when we saw illiquidity issues in trading of credit, muni bonds, and treasuries challenge the orderly function of of financial markets. The markets really were on the precipice of another 2008 at that point. Unfortunately, it was averted by strong and quick action from the Federal Reserve and the federal government. And similar action echoed across the world from other countries and central banks. And then bookending the quarter, stocks rose again in late March, up from their mid-month troughs, and are now approaching levels around 20% higher in response to these large stimulus packages. Through the uncertainty, markets are seeing early signs of the coronavirus spread flattening in April and in their role as forward pricing mechanisms foresee somewhat better days ahead over the horizon. So as far as taking away from this experience for investors and for those living through this past quarter, I would say that these events have shown that uncertainty and credit issues are the biggest challenges for markets. The sooner we are all able to get some certainty or even just less uncertainty around how and when the economic disruption might end, the sooner markets will make greater strides at recovery. One of my favorite quotes in this topic is, often markets are not looking for light at the end of the tunnel, only for the future to become marginally less black. 
Second, I think we can expect the path ahead to be tough and winding, unfortunately not smooth and straight. Economic data will get much worse before it gets better, and barring any miraculous end to the need to stay at home, that troubled economic data will be a challenge for markets uh, who are focused on fundamentals to digest, even if the path is improving. So it, it will be likely be very messy for some time, but, but I do not think this can last forever. This too shall pass. At recent prices offering bargains not seen since 2008, for those investors who can raise their eyes from the floor and focus on the horizon ahead, tremendous opportunity for large rewards are ahead with greater certainty than has been the case for the last four years. Andrew, you mentioned the issues facing credit markets today. Can you talk more about those issues and has this created any investment opportunities? Yes, of course. Um, so yeah, the first Fed announcements on monetary policy effectively cutting um, rates to zero by mid-March did not receive uniform market positive approval. Um, markets were still looking very increasingly fragile at that point. You know, as I mentioned, the spreads on um, trading bonds as shown by kind of ETF spreads were uh, widening and uh, markets were effectively closed in trading of bonds. And this was really impacting both um, the functioning of all markets, including equities. This is all, always the most dangerous part of any market crisis, and uh, it needed bigger and more coordinated stimulus. And this finally came along through the guise of the Money Market Mutual Fund Liquidity Facility, um, announced by the Fed, which was effectively a huge bond buying operation and you know, a backstop, a government approval of the prices on, on bonds. And since that time, markets have started to trade again with more liquidity and uh, improved general functioning. The Federal Reserve is basically supporting issuers of short-term investment grade credit by buying up large amounts of this debt and ensuring that these companies' uh, debt will not default. You know, first off, as far as opportunity, follow the Fed in its action is actually a good strategy in the short to medium term. So, you know, buying um, the similar areas of investment grade credit to what has been bought up by the Fed is a, is a, is a good strategy. And at the spreads that were being offered in mid-March is a good opportunity. Looking further ahead with a fair degree of risk tolerance, high yield bonds, so non-investment grade credit, uh, are offering spreads today um, much above their long-term norm. And uh, at this point um, in, in uh, the third week of March, those spreads were above 1,000 basis points, which has only been um, uh, matched in two previous uh, past times, both in 2001 and uh, 2008. And we, we believe that that spread you know, adequately compensates investors for the potential default risk. It takes a shot of confidence and adrenaline, um, but generally at those spread levels and at those today, high yield bonds tend to offer strong returns one or more years later, um, looking back at both history and our views today. And then uh, just in the very recent past, the Federal Reserve announced that they were extending the bond buying program into non-investment grade bonds to support that flow of liquidity to small and medium-sized businesses who really depend on that non-investment grade credit market. Andrew, you said this too shall pass, but also that things could continue to be messy for a while. Do you expect markets to fall to fresh lows after the recovery we've seen in the past two weeks or so? 
Well, that's the big question, isn't it? You know, and at Morningstar, we do recognize the danger and often futility in short-term forecasts. And so I will refrain from making a definitive forecast in this area. However, um, I do know that through quarter two, which you know we're two weeks into now, the negative impact of the economic shutdown um, on economic activity, corporate earnings, and potential bankruptcies will be extreme and unprecedented in its magnitude. We hope this is going to be a short-term event. The United States economy and most countries in Europe are almost certainly in a recession now. However, while the crisis remains primarily a health crisis, we do believe that the opportunity for a strong economic recovery is relatively good. Mostly this has been priced into uh, markets today, uh, but the biggest unknown now is the duration of the shutdown and therefore the um, ability for the post-crisis recovery. And we are watching very closely, um, obviously China, where they're at different point of the cycle, and uh, it is showing that the recovery part of the part of the you know the opening up of the economy is not easy, and particularly getting um, you know folks to sort of to start spending again. So all in all, I expect markets to not demonstrate a linear pattern going forward, and as I mentioned, it's going to be messy. I would draw on. Um, past history, um, studies of pre previous crises in 2008 and 2001 show that markets tended to bounce back from the first sell-off before as they digested that fundamental data that I mentioned earlier, they have tended to reach a further low in the next six months after that initial bounce back. So while we can't be sure that every crisis is the same and um, you know, just the last two uh, crisis histories won't be repeated, we do think that there is going to be some potential for you know, further market falls going forward over the next six months. Next, the conversation turned to Philip Strail. Philip, where is your global asset class research showing opportunity given the global sell-off in the first quarter? So it's definitely been a very much a global um, uh, crisis, and I think uh, that's really been the unique, uh, you know, part of this uh, particular economic crisis that you know global governments uh, basically in unison uh, were shutting down economic activity, and the market's been sort of busy trying to price in uh, what that means. Um, th th you know, this is uh, you know the first global and pandemic of this kind that we're facing, and um, as Andrew mentioned you know, the path to normalization. There's still a lot of uncertainty around that, uh, but, but would very much echo uh, Andrew's comments that, um, you know, the, the really aggressive and global uh, response we've seen from uh, policymakers, central banks uh, buying unlimited uh, amounts of, uh, of bonds, uh, the, the stimulus packages that have been put in place in the United States and elsewhere, uh, we think that those will be effective in averting a uh, financial crisis. And, and really, that's what we think uh, one of the key uh, risks could be if there hadn't been uh, such an aggr aggressive uh, policy response is that ultimately this could be spilling into uh, a global financial uh, crisis type uh, scenario. But we think uh, policymakers, again, have responded aggressively, and we think that that's uh, not a likely outcome uh, moving forward. So um, as long-term investors, you know, taking a look at, uh, you know, what's happening uh, today and, you know, kind of where prices are today, we do think that there's uh, significant opportunities. Um, one way of, uh, of looking at that is by, um, 
looking at what's happened to our expected returns over the past three months. Um, so global stocks, uh, through the lens of our long-term valuation models, uh, that expected return has increased by, by about three percentage points uh, over the quarter, uh, which is a market improvement in the reward for risk that we think global stocks are offering. Um, when we sort of look at the, uh, the opportunities within equities, um, uh, the areas that we uh, like the most are areas where we feel the market has been too pessimistic. Uh, for instance, one example there would be uh, global integrated energy companies, uh, which have, in many cases, strong balance sheets. Uh, they have diversified business models, and we think they should be able to weather this downturn. Um, and we think at current market prices, uh, these types of companies offer uh, significant potential upside. Um, we also think that um, financials, uh, large banks in particular, are attractively valued today. Uh, they're much better capitalized than they were during the previous crisis, and they should be able to weather even a severe uh, economic downturn. Uh, within fixed income markets, uh, the credit markets have been under pressure. Uh, we see increased opportunity there. Uh, we think credit spreads uh, more than compensate us for a potential pickup in defaults. Uh, and we think that the reward for risk in, in many parts of the credit market um, are, are decent today. Another area we're, we're looking at, and, and we've, uh, we've added positions to, are inflation-linked bonds. Uh, th that market is now pr uh, pricing in persistently low inflation over the next five to 10 years, which we think is, a, um, uh, is, is an unlikely outcome. So we think there's opportunity uh, in that higher quality spectrum uh, as well. Uh, but, but as always, I would, I would point out that you know, we're uh, patient long-term investors uh, our goal is not to uh, call the bottom of the market uh, or, or really uh, trade and, and invest on short-term um, uh, potential predictions of what's going to happen. Uh, what we're trying to do is find assets that trade at a discount to their fair value in the hopes that, that, um, uh, that those asset prices ultimately move back uh, to, their, to their fair value level. Philip, what are some of the other equity asset classes that you see being attractive right now? Beyond the ones that I've mentioned, um, energy and, and financials, um, uh, we're also doing research on, on some of the more uh, harder hit areas within the equity market. So uh, obviously travel related equities have been um, impacted by uh, the coronavirus and many of them uh, trade at, at depressed valuations. Uh, airline stocks, for example, um, uh, you know, have been uh, you know, those prices fell more than 50% um, uh, so far this year. Um, uh, travel, uh, air uh, travel is down 93% in the United States. It's down 97% in Europe. Um, uh, and those trade on very depressed um, valuations today. Uh, so it's an area we're, uh, we're doing research on um, at the moment. Um, uh, there's a, a lot of uncertainty um, still with, with, within that part of the market. So any potential allocation there would be um, sized uh, appropriately in accordance with uh, that uncertainty. Um, also, smaller opportunities we're looking at are in the uh, are with auto auto manufacturers. Um, so auto manufacturers have been hit by a combination of having to shut down their plants uh, to uh, to ease the spread of the virus uh, among their workers, um, and also uh, just plummeting auto sales and how many people going out there and, and, and buying cars uh, right now. So uh, there's um, you know once you look through that that those short term challenges. 
uh, we think that there's opportunities um, in the long run for these companies, and we think they have strong franchise values uh, in, in many cases. Philip, you mentioned earlier that credit looks attractive in part because it has overly priced in defaults. In this environment, when so much of the economy has come to a near halt, how can we know how many defaults might result from the downturn? Um, we certainly don't know for, for sure um, you know, what, what this default cycle uh, looks like. And then, um, as I mentioned before, the uniqueness um, of this particular downturn is just the speed with which um, economic activity has uh, basically come to a halt in certain sectors. So, um, you know, one thing to focus on, focus in on more today than, than in previous cycles is um, the liquidity of these companies, the ability uh, to have short-term funding. Um, the good news is that uh, the policy response, uh, the responses we talked about before from governments and the Fed have targeted uh, credit markets and have uh, provided uh, bridge financing and loans um, and have uh, attempted to buy uh, you know, credit bonds, both on the investment grade side and, and as well as uh, with today's announcement in the, uh, in the high yield area. So um, while, you know, this crisis is certainly unique compared to, you know, what we've seen before, we still think that it makes sense to, uh, to look at previous uh, credit downturns and, and see to what extent once we shock our models with, uh, you know, the default cycle, for example, from the global financial crisis, how things uh, stack up. So we've seen um, in the high yield market, for example, during the global financial crisis, default rates of 15%. We've seen recovery rates of 33%. Um, so if you look at the high yield spread uh, as of yesterday, uh, markets up quite a bit today. Uh, that was about around 900 basis points. Uh, so applying those default rate assumptions, uh, that would still compensate you for, for a pretty severe uh, credit event. Philip, markets have rallied in the past few weeks. How much of this has changed opportunities in your eyes? Are there any asset classes that have risen enough to no longer be attractive? Sure. Um, so, you know, when we build portfolios, we try to be, you know, holistic and have, um, you know, asset classes in there that uh, respond uh, differently to uh, an, an economic, uh, uh, to different economic environments. And um, so we've had, you know, uh, long-term treasury bonds. We had higher quality assets. So generally, those are the areas that uh, would be funding sources um, at this at this present time. So within equities, uh, two examples would be um, stocks and consumer staple companies, healthcare companies, which have done relatively well. Uh, so those are less attractive now than they were um, uh, than they were a few months ago before we went into this downturn. I would also mention that uh, probably the biggest dichotomy that we see in um, in equity markets today is between value and growth stocks. Um, so if you look at the valuation gap between value and growth stocks today, they're truly at ex historical extremes. And, uh, you know, that's particularly true outside the United States, where uh, when we look at our valuation models and compare uh, the expected return of value versus growth stocks over the next 10 years, we think that value stocks will outperform growth stocks outside of the United States by about seven percentage points, uh, which, is a, which is a significant margin. So, um, you know, one of the additional things uh, that, that we're thinking about is, is rotating out of um, some of those growth asset classes more into the, the value names. Can you give me a sense of the extent to which our expected return estimates improved and maybe give a few examples? Sure, absolutely. So I mentioned, you know, at the broad global equity market level, we've seen about a 3% uh, increase in, in return expectations. Um, if we drill down and look at the sector lens, um, 
the biggest increases we've seen in energy and financials. Uh, if you look at uh, the global region, so to speak, uh, we think UK stocks um, you know, is one of the bigger markets that has jumped up quite significantly in terms of expected returns, up 4.3%. Uh, Latin America uh, sold off significantly. That expected return is up 6.8%. And then within fixed income, it's also um, it's some of the riskier parts of the market. We mentioned high yield earlier, which has um, you know, uh, sold off significantly, so prices are, are more attractive there. That expected return is up uh, 4.9% over the quarter, as well as hard currency emerging market debt, which has that expected return has risen by 3.6%. So overall, we think uh, you know, the, reward, the reward for risk available uh, for, for long-term investors such as ourselves is much, is much more attractive than it was three months ago. Turning back to Andrew, can you give us a sense of how the events of the first quarter affected asset classes' movement within the vintage context we've used to describe how these investment ideas mature in our portfolios? Yeah. Um, so, you know, cl- clearly for those that are interested in wine, the, the concept of building a, a wine cellar with different vintages is that at any point in the future, you should be having some wine that is coming into its uh, uh, best period for drinking or harvesting and for um, some uh, some wine that is still going through kind of the maturing um, uh, time period. So you've, you've constantly got wine that is maturing and constantly got wine that is ready for drinking. Um, but it's 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 uh, unclear when you first start off on that process exactly how long each bottle of wine will take before it matures. Similarly, um, positioning portfolios with lots of different ideas in that global opportunity set that Philip has talked about is not an an exact science. Um, you know, positioning them for straight, strong future returns needs to have some element of art and science uh, because we're not trying to time tops and bottoms of markets. Instead, our portfolios retain many different positions. Um, some are immature with a preparedness to wait and for us to build um, the size of those positions through time, while others are quickly becoming uh, ready to be harvested and deliver those, those great returns for the portfolios that, that we've been waiting for. In times like quarter one, uh, often this process speeds up relative to normal times. And we need to work really hard as portfolio managers to quickly recycle capital out of mature positions, harvest those returns that are really above the market and above indexes that we've been working very hard towards getting. Um, Examples, as Philip mentioned, are areas like US consumer staples um, or long-term treasury bonds or internationally Japan uh, uh, stocks. And getting them out of those positions after they've produced the returns and getting that capital into new posi- new areas like US high yield debt that was offering such a great re- reward for risk. So, um, you know, the whole point of our portfolios is that sometimes uh, that recycling of capital goes quite slowly because nothing really is changing in terms of relative opportunity. And other times, like quarter one, it happens quickly. And that's when as, as portfolio managers get uh, excited that we can really kind of take money out of the the areas that are producing good returns and getting them into the new areas. So definitely in this period, trading was more rapid than normal. We were able to use cash flows to really build new positions rather than uh, always capitalizing on gains. And, uh, you know, while it's been a very, very sort of busy period for us as portfolio managers, it does mean that we're getting, um, you know, clients invested capital into those areas that have got a higher uh, future implied return. The next question came from an advisor who asked Andrew, 
in the past, you have said that asset classes trading at what you found to be attractive valuations, like international equities, should fall less than asset classes that are trading at a premium, like U.S. equities. But during this market correction, we did not see that. We saw international markets fall more than those in the U.S. Can you explain? Of course, yeah. Uh, again, a good question. Um, so the first thing to say is that uh, you know international markets are uh, just like the U.S. market, are complex and involve many different countries, sectors, securities, currencies, all moving as different variables compared to kind of the the U.S. sort of home country. So. Um, the first thing to say is I, 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 I don't agree totally that the international markets did not fall um, uh, less than the US. Um, let me kind of go into some more detail there. So the international index, the international combined uh, ACQUI index uh, did not fall by as much as the US broad market index. Um, but currencies, so non-US dollar currencies sold off um, harder relative to the US dollar. So if you are an unhedged investor in um, international markets, then yes, you, the combined exposure to both markets and currencies meant that the general fall was greater than the US market, although it was pre pretty close, you know, it was within 1%. Um, of course, now we're not passive investors, so we don't, don't buy the index. Um, so the first thing to say is that we chose particular parts of the market that we felt would protect capital better in a sell-off than the US market. So our biggest international position relative to the uh, broader index was in the Japan market. And also we held an overweight to emerging markets. So going through those in turn, uh, the Japan market was much more defensive than the US market. And in fact, the Japan market through mid-February to the end of March was one of the best performing markets in the world. And in that particular case, the Japanese yen, the currency, uh, held up well compared to the US dollar over the quarter. So, you know, the combination of investing in the Japan market and investing in Japanese yen was a uh, positive relative to the US market. Emerging markets uh, were a, a mixed bag, but in general, the, the markets themselves, the underlying exposure did well with China, you know, despite, um, you know, our concerns about, uh, you know, the virus emanating in China and being the first sort of to, to lock down, the Chinese market was one of the strongest performers through the, the quarter. But in general, emerging market currencies performed very poorly. And this tends to be the case that in a risk-off environment, emerging market currencies do tend to um, fall by much more uh, compared to the US dollar. So in general, by being a unhedged emerging market investor, while the market did well, the currencies performed less well. Outside of uh, Japan and emerging markets, we did have positions across uh, Europe. And uh, because of our focus on long-term value, those positions were um, in the main biased towards um, the sectors of energy and uh, financials with a particular focus on uh, the US and Germany as countries. Now, again, um, those were areas that post the, particularly post the OPEC uh, meeting that didn't end well with uh, effectively Saudi Arabia and Russia continuing sort of to supply oil at previous rates. Those were areas that had bigger sell-offs. 
and indeed the um, the the, uh, the British pound um, underperformed compared to other currencies, while the euro held sort of its own sort of broadly. So, you know, in answer to the question, um, while the international market performed reasonably well, but the currency brought the total exposure down below the US, our portfolios were in fact biased to some of the better parts of the international markets, uh, the exceptions being those that were in European energy companies um, and European financials. And we have held and actually added to those positions through the quarter and expect them to be really kind of strong performers through them being priced, you know, something around 40 or 50 cents in the dollar compared to a dollar of intrinsic value for, for a great returning future going into uh, as as markets tend to sort of to normalize partially. And we do expect that, um, you know, supply issues as is, is now being kind of um, uh, discussed and reported will, will tend to normalize as, you know, a, a low oil price above around $20 does not help any of the oil supplying nations. I hope that answers the question. Effectively, um, the, the statement was right. It needs to be kind of uh, thought about it in more detail. And our portfolios were generally uh, biased or pivoted to the best performing parts of that international uh, index. And we'll end with Philip. Uh, an advisor in the audience asked, high quality growth stocks have been the best thing to own over the past 10 years. And it's been the best thing to own recently because of the safety of their balance sheets. What's the case for owning other more value-oriented sectors like financials or energy? Sure. Um, so, you know, it's true that um, these growth companies um, have less what we would call fundamental risks. And, um, you know, that's benefited them um, as we've seen sort of this economic shock, uh, you know, hit, hit, the, hit the economy. But ultimately, when we, um, you know, think about what risk is, uh, risk in our, from our perspective is, uh, uh, the potential for um, uh, permanent loss of capital, uh, so um, losing money that you can't make back. Uh, so the one thing that we look at uh, when we when we think about risk there is, uh, you know, what is the the price uh, that we're paying for the value we're getting? So price has a as an important an important determinant uh, of risk um, uh, when we think about. Uh, you know that uh, that risk of uh, permanent impairment, uh, permanent impairment of, of capital. So uh, when we look at the um, the valuations of growth stocks relative to value stocks, we think uh, we can invest, particularly at today's prices, uh, in those value names uh, with a much bigger margin margin of safety. Andrew mentioned, uh, you know, forty cents, uh, fifty cents on a dollar for some of the energy names. Uh, so we do think that that's a uh, a better way to to mitigate risk, but um, as always, when we build portfolios, we have to make sure that we're we're diversified. Uh, we're not just uh, exposed to one particular industry that is particularly economically sensitive. So we do have to still think about uh, the various pieces that we put in place. And when we do own a bit more cyclical stocks, we have to potentially offset that with other parts that are less cyclical within our portfolios. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe out there and be well, and come back next week for another episode. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. 
Neither Morningstar nor its subsidiary shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar and its subsidiaries make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future results. Investors should be aware of the additional risk associated with funds investing in emerging or developing markets. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of capital. Investors should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, risk profile, and consulting with a regulated financial advisor where necessary before making any investment decisions. In the UK, the Morningstar managed portfolios are intended for citizens or legal residents of the United Kingdom. These portfolios can only be made available through the use of an investment advisor appropriately authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and is subject to change. Morningstar Investment Management Europe's address can be found at www.morningstar.com.